This week on This Wouldn't Know, we feature Sarah Slagle, an accomplished producer, props designer, production designer, and chef. Sarah uh, is one of my favorite people in the world, and we are so excited to introduce her to you today on This Wouldn't Know. I like that new intro format. It's kind of classy. But it's the kind of classy where you have to say it in like a Midwestern accent to sort of yes. acknowledge Yeah, it's classy. I did not know that you and Monty have known each other for 10 years. Yeah, I know. Although I will say I've seen you more this year than I have in all the 10 years we've known each other. Because we did Romeo and Juliet this year and it was just like nice to cross paths. Sarah, would you mind letting folks know both our history and then like your trajectory in New York as a theater artist? Once Upon a Time worked at a very famous men's entertainment magazine and then I didn't. (laughs) I was unemployed and I was just sort of board. And I came across this listing for like a props designer on Craigslist for a theater company in the indie community called Boomerang Theater Company. And I was like, well, that could be cool. I kind of done stuff like that before because I'd worked on a few commercials like through friends. And I'm like, what's this about? And so my first theater project was three shows in rep, (laughs) three very different shows. There was uh, Much Ado About Nothing. There was a Tom Stoppard play. And there was a brand new piece of writing that I couldn't tell you the name. I don't remember the show at all. And then shortly after that, I, I kind of got involved with the Gallery Players, which is a community theater in Brooklyn. Long story short, uh, I became their resident prop master. I met Monty at Summer Shakespeare at Gallery doing Othello. He played Cassio. That was such an amazing production spiritually because Mm. I feel like it just everything just kind of mushed together so well. And everyone was just like on the same page. If you haven't seen one of my shows or if you don't know, I, I guess for the lack of a better term would be called a method prop designer where I. That is so accurate. I'm so curious. What does this mean? Um, may I give one example? Yes. For a play set in the American Revolution with a lot of, of letters, hand making the paper for hundreds of letters and handwriting all of those letters so that everything in the box can be opened by an actor on stage so that they can follow their impulses. And the entire design is real, full, and made from scratch. I just have this like insane need to completely immerse myself and the actors into the world which they're playing in. I think that's so I think that's so like to the point where I've at certain points I've you know been up all night typesetting tax forms from 1962 because I couldn't find them online so I recopied them so that they could have the act yeah I do that Um, I will make you know 600 letters to fill a trunk that are all hand dip dyed and in calligraphy with real ink and wax seals. Um, and you do so this, amazing. And they you do so this amazing. by yourself. There's not a team that does I do this not, with you. I do not have a minion. No, it's all me. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. When do you sleep? Don't. <laughs> I'm actually an Android. And, you know, to kind of like jump forward, I found this company called Retro Productions. They do a very specific type of theater, which is um, 19th century plays only that are not commonly produced when you do one of their shows because everybody involved is right down to the minute detail where it's like you're actually living in this place at Mm. this time. And uh, it's rewarding, but you also learn so much Mm -hmm. just about history, trying to decorate an apartment 
of a couple who's been in that apartment for 40 years and what that would look like. And uh, it's just so much work that goes into that. Your first job working in theater, running three shows in rep, were you working in properties on that show right from right from the get-go? Yeah, and it was just me. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, fake it till you make it, girl. I was just, I wanted to do something. I was unemployed. I was sort of like down and out. I was like, I don't know what to do now. I just need a break from like, I, you know, did graphic design, marketing and advertising. And Mm -hmm. that burnt me out in one way. And I needed to expel those creative juices into another channel. And that's what I kind of stumbled upon. Had you worked in theater before or was that? I mean, in high school here and there doing scenic painting, stuff like that. Not too much. I tried to act for a while. That didn't work out. Um... The whole stage fright thing. Was the theater that you worked with your first time out, did they sort of train you in this in this no. method of like method prop making and prop no. mastery? Or was this this just came from you somewhere? That is just like it came from me as an artist where I'm like, I need to make this as real as possible because the actors really like it. Hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't like I was trying to appease them, but it's I'm really into the idea of world building. And that is a huge part of it, as you have experienced. A lot of people don't realize how much work goes into props and like set decorating. It's just like an insane amount of work and uh, research and shopping. I make a lot of things because not everything can be bought. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, did I have to hand make my own paper for an Aaron Burr play? No, but I felt it was necessary. <laughs> I'm not, I wasn't even involved in this play, but I immediately have a sense of approaching all of those different props with so much more respect and care when you know how much time and effort went into them, which again, going back to your point, I feel like drops you into the world that much more because if you know someone had to make this paper by hand and they had to make multiple copies of this paper by hand just so you can use it in specific moments in the show, you're going to treat that much differently than if someone just ran out and got a box of cardstock parchment from Office Depot. You would hope. However, some actors... No. As I'm sure you can tell us, Sarah. No. Yeah. It happens. Top of your mind, without naming names, Mm -hmm. biggest horror story from your your perspective as a maker of these amazing world-building elements that an actor has done so that every actor listening out there can make sure never, ever, ever to do this. There has been on numerous occasions, I have gone out to find very specific glassware for a period show, and that that glassware never makes it past the second show, even though I specifically told them it's irreplaceable. I don't remember the show. I remember it was a Shakespeare, where there was like a, a fake knife situation with blood. Somewhere mid-run... The fake knife had disappeared, and the inexperienced ASM at the time went and grabbed a steak knife. <gasps> no. No, 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 yes. no, 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 what? But here's, I know, I know that's like, so... This was in New York. This was in New York. This was a few years ago. I understand his intention, and it was not malicious in any way. He was just like, he didn't think about it. Clearly. But... Thankfully, the actor noticed while in the middle of a scene. Um, the actor 
God, he noticed God while bless. he was on stage. And he just like kind of just faked it. And I'm not, I hear this afterwards because I wasn't there. Yeah, that could have ended so badly. So horrifically. Yeah. So thank God that he was able to think on his feet. Uh-huh. Yeah, but also, again, actors, check your... Props. Thankfully, no one was hurt. Nothing. But this is like, that is just so irresponsible. And I know stuff like that has happened on Broadway, too. I think this, there was like a Sweeney Todd thing, right? Where what? like What? Yeah. Was it Were they swapped out a, a prop knife for a Something real Something had happened. And it was like the one that they slit the throat. And I remember hearing that story. Sure, because that's a knife you can just afford to swap out on a whim. It's not like and it's, it's ever... period. I mean, it's yeah. actually like a shame. <laughs> Um, oh my god! I know you. You hear these, and you're just like your heart drops. And you're just like, oh I need god. to go and take a nap. Yeah, no, I'm. That. I'm looking back on like production teams that I thought might have been a little bit less responsible, and now looking in horror at what could have possibly happened. Oh yeah, my god. always check your props. Um, because even like on the indie level, there's a lot going on before right. a show, and they just like miss something, and that could be the one thing that's like really important. When that happens, it's how do you handle that with? The people who are on your team or other actors, et cetera, et cetera. How do you, I'm basically asking, how do you not fly off the handle? I always try to follow professional protocol, which means after opening night, I'm not really allowed to talk to anyone unless it's like an emergency. So I'm only that. allowed to converse with the stage manager and then he or she flows the information where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in this, in this instance, it seems to me like this would really be like the fight director is who should have been. There wasn't one. Well, there's the problem. Uh, yeah. Yep. yeah. In that specific in- instance, I broke protocol and I went right over the stage manager's head and I went straight to the director who I had a good relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like I could do that. If it was someone that I didn't really know that well, I probably would have stayed in my lane. That person was immediately terminated from the production. And um, yeah, I felt really bad, but that's just like, that's not something you can mess with, you no. know? When I feel like this is, this is one of the, like, I feel like this actually goes beyond the theater, right? When when that level of danger is introduced to a situation, I don't care if it's a prop knife being swapped out for a stage knife. I don't care if it's your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving slewing racial epithets. Once once actual danger is introduced into the realm, like staying in your lane can in fact be selfish. Yeah. yeah. It's like, when do you step in? Mm-hmm. And are you one of those like nosy people who always right. steps in? And it's just, it's hard to gauge nowadays. I'm, so I'm fascinated at... Where do you start? Where do you like to start with your world building? I go to the actors and I say, tell me about your character and what their background story is. So I get, and it depends on the play, of course. I go to them and I ask them very specific questions. I was like, where does your character work? How long have you lived in this? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, why are you asking me all this? And then they find out later that I give them all these props that are like super personal to their character. And Mm. it just like elevates that character to a new level that they probably never even realized because I gave them physical objects. It's like visualizing what's in their mind as the background story on the set. 90% of professional theater though, you're hired months before the actors are, what happens when they want to see design drafts from you and you don't get to meet the actors until you're on draft four? That's a good question. Um, Because that's happened where there's been a few shows and they were off-Broadway production. So like I, I had to like follow the rules. And I am weird and I will go to rehearsals. If I can't talk to the actors, I'll show up at random rehearsals or ones that I feel like are important 
And I just, I watch and I listen. One of the interesting things about me as being extremely detailed is that I'm a keen observer. I always have been. I just notice everything. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'll go to rehearsals and I'll just watch and I'll listen. I won't say a word. I probably won't talk to anyone. I just bring my notebook and I'm just like, okay, so that person does this with their hands. That means they're left-handed. And, you know, that makes a difference when... I give them a weathered briefcase that they would have carried in their left hand and it's weathered perfectly like they had just been carrying it for 30 years um, instead of one that was just bought from a store. Do you see why Sarah works on every project that I do if I have any oh, say in the matter? Oh, 100%. So uh, one of our Patreon supporters, Amber Elby, asked during the video live stream of this podcast recording, Sarah, do you have any food theater ghost stories? Oh, asterisk. Good. Ducking autocorrect. So I don't I don't subscribe to the label of ghost. I do believe that there is a veil between the living and the dead, and sometimes that veil is thin and sometimes it's not, but that's a different podcast. I've spent many a nights in a theater doing an all-nighter, because I do those. That's how this stuff happens. By myself in the dead of night with the only person there. And yeah, I've heard things. I've seen shadows. Things have gone missing and then reappeared uh, out of question. I had like these like cigarette props and they had gone missing. I didn't know if someone had thought they were real cigarettes and tried to smoke them. And so it was like the cigarettes themselves plus the, the package that was, um, vintage replicated. I searched everywhere in that theater. I searched a dressing room backstage, front of house, in the house, everywhere. And at the end of the show, we just kind of had to like make do for the show because we're just running out of time. I found them in a box, in a trunk that was locked under a prop table behind a curtain. And the thing is, no one knew that that trunk was there because I put it there. It was so freaky. And I'm like, how did, that's like some David Blaine stuff. Like, how did that even get in there? I actually didn't tell anyone about it because I didn't want to freak anyone out. I just said, oh, I found them. They were in the corner because like the ASM did not have the combination to that prop trunk. And I know the other person that did have the combination didn't have time to deal with it. That's how dangerous nicotine is, kids. Yeah. Even after you're dead, it will make you Even stay and a- haunt <laughs> theaters. Paper. Take prop cigarettes. Don't start because so, you'll never quit. From that point on, when I'm in the th- when I first move into a space, like when we do tech, I go early and I will sage the space. Really? Yeah, I do that. Right on. I don't tell anyone about it cuz it doesn't hurt anyone. Mhm. And, and I don't send anything away. I just said, from this point to this point, just let us be. And we won't bother you and vice versa. I always, if, I, if I'm in a traditional theater space, I will always find a time when I'm the only one in the space, as early in the process as possible, to walk every part of the audience, like every place that an audience feet can be. Mm-hmm. And find some moment to put hand on whatever exposed material is on a stage wall or backdrop. And just, I don't ever say anything or do it but like just a moment of like thank you please how do you i mean do you props designer production designer set decorator what how do you like to couch the art that you make 
you know, there's a lot of shows where I just do props. And then there's some times where I do props and I'll decorate the set. And it's just like kind of encompasses a few different things. There's some shows where we're building from scratch where I, you know, pretty much design the whole visual aspect of it. Yeah, it's just like takes one of those minds to be able to see the whole picture in your mind and explain it to people and tell them that's what they want. Even though a director is like, I don't know about that. And I'm like, you know what? Just try it. We'll work it out. And then nine times out of 10, they end up going with it. Carl Forsman, who's another great director, taught a semester of directing at the Atlantic in third year. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave us and one of the things that he said was most helpful for him as a director working with actors was if you couch your direction in the form of a question, either three things will happen. Either A, the actor will agree and try to take the note. They will uh, try to reject it or they'll say, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. But either way, what you can say is if you start to get any resistance, he says, what do you what do you think about, do you think that the, that the character would do this? And if it's a, I don't think so, or no, I'm not sure, he always just says, well, let's go back and let's try it this way one time and see how it works. And more often than not, like you said, that's the direction that it was supposed to go or that's the way it was supposed to be. And he said it's a really great way to bring your actors in uh, and bring them along for the process and make them feel like they are a part of it that you're creating something together as opposed to you being the one in the room just telling people. When, particularly if you have a difficult actor, couching stuff in the thing of like, um, that was awesome. That was so good. Like, I'll be honest. I think I have this weird idea. I think it's probably really stupid, but that was so like, we, we basically know what the scene is now. Like just for fun, would you like see what happens if we do this? It's probably gonna be God awful. <laughs> and nine times out of 10, then they'll think it's their idea. Actor friends, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. Um, don't piss off your props master. Word. And. Or your costume designer or your set designer or your anyone. stage manager. Basically anybody whose job it is to make sure that you can do your job more effectively, stay yeah. on their good side. Yeah. There was this show um, I did a few years ago. Ooh, should I say? I'm not going to say any names or titles just because... Yeah. Just because. That's probably safer for us, too, in terms so of So like, I was dealing with a very difficult lead actor who thought he was awesome, but let's face it, he wasn't. And he had to drink a lot of wine in the show. So after numerous times of asking him to be more professional, having stage manager and director get involved, and he still wouldn't quit, the last show, I replaced his grape juice with prune juice. That happened. It's so unprofessional, but you know what? He deserved it, and everyone backed me up. The stage manager was like, that was awesome. I can't believe you did that. What was he What was he doing that was so... He was being extremely aggressive, unprofessional, not a team player, telling me to... Basically telling me how to do my job when he didn't even know how to do his. If you get paid to play professionally, be nice to the people who are giving you the playground. Yeah. I love that. 
Because I will grease those monkey bars. <laughs> and Dan and I will be there and laugh just like that <laughs> over and over at your pain. And also it costs you, I was talking about this with uh, with a friend of mine recently, because we were talking about how insular and how small the theater world is and the entertainment industry is. And you never know who knows anybody. Exactly. And it costs you nothing to be kind. I won't say it costs you nothing to be kind, because I have had experiences... Where it is extraordinarily hard to be kind because you know the work you're doing is terrible. Mm. You're being asked to do things that are bad artistically. Mm. Uh, the people around you are yes manning. Like it can be very, very hard yeah, to be kind. We've I all think, been there. I think sometimes it can be easy to be kind, but I think particularly in this business, it can be excruciatingly hard to be kind. But I think that what happens if you take that shortcut, if you are in the right, what it can potentially cost you to be right for that second is not worth the effort of weeks of pain to make other people's lives more pleasant. Mm. Cause probably there's a lot of people who feel just like you do, but you will make their life miserable and you'll exacerbate the situation. I mean, especially in indie theater, because, you know, in addition to doing props, I also produce and that means I'm in the casting room and I have a voice and I've had to use that before. And it's just like, yeah, I worked with that person on that thing that one time and it did not go well. Do I want to do it again because he's really talented or she? No. Done. Comedy Central has a uh, has a series called This Is Not Happening. Have you, have yes, you ever heard it? I yeah. I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite things to watch on YouTube. I love it now. But uh, one of the comedians on that show, uh, Roy Wood Jr., was telling a story about how he was doing a, a taping of Last Comet or uh, National Star Search back when that got a reboot. And he bombed in the semifinal round and a couple of the celebrity judges were not kind about it. And he had a moment on stage in the middle of this in the middle of this live broadcast where he was going to react negatively but the host of the show Arsenio Hall saw what was happening and physically stopped him very subtly on stage and stopped him from reacting and afterward he pulled him aside backstage and he and Roy Wood Jr credits this conversation with Arsenio Hall as saving his career it's something that he's never forgot where Arsenio Hall says to him People will forget a bad show. They will never forget a bad attitude. Mm, that's, yes. Oh, my God. That 100%. is the thing. That's, that's the thing. People yes. will forget a bad show, but they will never forget a bad attitude. And I heard that, and I immediately made a mental note. File that away. Yeah. Just file that away. Yeah. Put it somewhere where it's instantly accessible in your brain. So I feel that way, right? But then kind of going back to the stay in your lane conversation earlier, I was once in a show with a director who is very successful, who I respect quite a lot. That aside, I, I was watching actors around me and sometimes I felt like they were being abused. And there was an instance where in this particular production, there was an actor who identified as female and had recently had a child and was playing a character who is a mother in the play. And the director, who does not identify as female, was trying to tell this female-identifying actor what it was like to carry a child. <laughs> and oh, God. obviously, not only would it be disrespectful as an actor in that process to be got against the director, it's also definitely not in my lane mm -hmm. as a cis male actor in that room. But I can't tell you... Not only how much I wanted to speak out, how much when I saw that that actor was disturbed by it afterwards, I felt terrible for not speaking out. 
I still to this day think, frankly, I should have stood up and been like, I'm sorry, that's unacceptable. Who was the equity deputy? Someone who had the exact same reaction I did. Mm. Like the exact same reaction and stayed seated. Your ultimate instinct and choice of action to not say anything in the moment, I think in a weird way that was, I don't want to say correct, but I think that was the the right intention because I feel like hearing that the the smart way or the, the more effective way to handle that conflict is afterward to find that female identifying actor and say, this moment felt a little weird to me. This felt inappropriate. I wanted to check in with you. How are you doing? Do you want anybody to say anything on your behalf? Do you want to say anything? Because that just, that felt weird to me. I think the the impulse to say something on that person's behalf is well-intentioned, but I think the most effective way to go about it is first to check in with the person who is directly involved and then find out if there is something specifically that they want to do and then formulate a way forward from there. Sarah, I'm interested to know if you have... Uh point of view on that experience i am weird sometimes and like i will not speak up even though i know i 100 percent should and it's just like it's it, it stems from like a childhood wound where i talked too much in class and got reprimanded for it so like as an adult i don't speak up a lot and yeah i feel like a lot of people have that thing that they deal with. it's like a complex almost i don't have a name for it um and I probably, it pains me to say this, but I probably would have just sat there, even though I would have completely felt totally, you know, empathetic towards the person who was being offended. But I'm just like, what do I do? I'm like, I don't want to be that jerk all that's like, oh, we shouldn't be talking about this. This is weird. Um, but then at the same time, it's like, it's just as bad if you just sit there and do nothing. That's a question that I think this show should continue to, to address. In, in brief, all I will say to that is, luckily, this was a wonderful company, so exactly what you described did happen mm -hmm. as soon as she went off stage. There were six of us that kind of just went and didn't really even say anything, just like sat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With, a, with that kind of like, we all saw the same thing, right? No right. one really needed to speak, and she spoke, and then a conversation was had. But I was in, my, the, the, in, in the briefest terms, my complication to what you said is, in the power dynamics of this industry, if there was a pause in between, the director might think that she asked someone to speak so that it wouldn't seem like it was coming from her. Because yes, I agree with you in principle. However, I think sometimes when these dynamics are at play, which obviously is so much of the conversation now, one of the things I feel like we haven't yet addressed that's come up tonight a couple of times, thank God we are dealing with the sexual implications, not necessarily the gender-based implications, pretty well now, at least from what I'm experiencing versus four years ago. But I feel like the other forms of abuse that happen in the inherent power structures in theater have not changed at all. And I feel no more empowered as an actor to speak up on someone else's behalf, even in a even through the correct channels, because I don't think it'll go any further than it would have gone five years ago. Um, and that's to me, that's the bigger question of like, yes, that's the right thing, but there are so many power dynamics at play that suppress that dissonant voice to the director's pristine authority that it often gets squelched or worse comes back to make an actor seem like a problem, even when they went through the right channels. Do you think that has anything to do with the fact that theater is an art form which is based on being traditional 
And even though we're living in like modern day with all this technology and everything, there's still some things we do that haven't changed in hundreds of years. And like the hierarchy aspect is one of them. No, the hierarchy thing is one of the things that we invented just a hundred years ago. Directors Mm. didn't exist until Russia in the late 19th century. I did not know that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's why Rude Grooms does what we do. Like like this whole regimented authority system that we're so beholden to, which I so agree with you about, that is very recent. And yet we're so... They're like, oh my God, we got to keep this going. And it's like, why? Mm. (laughs) You know? Right. It just, I feel like it's more of a hindrance nowadays than anything. And it's, I wonder if it has anything to do with like how we live in this modern society where we're just like free and open with each other because like the internet and social media has made us feel like we're allowed to say whatever we want whenever we want, which is fine in some respects and not fine in others. Mm. And if that is just, spilling over into this pool where you step into a theater and if you're doing a Shakespeare, you just like automatically transported to like the 1500s. It's just like, I feel like we're still towing the line between traditional and modern way of doing things where you think it would be more evolved than it has been, but it hasn't. Before we get into the the end of the show, Sarah, you just hinted at the fact that you have shifted from making props into producing as well. Yeah. And I'm interested in how that happened me and too. if there are <laughs> if there are any parallels that you see in those because I feel like there are obviously a lot of directors who've become producers, there are a lot of writers who have become producers, there are even a lot of actors who've become producers. But I feel like it's much rarer that you hear of a costume set or properties designer shifting into that sphere. And I'm interested to hear what that dynamic is yeah. like for you and if there are any overlaps. So how I got into it was uh I had become resident uh, with Retro Productions and uh, fearless uh, leader, artistic producing director, Heather Cunningham, kind of took me under her wing because we have very similar styles in which we do things. She's very like all about the details. She's a phenomenal actor as well. And just like how she runs her company is just very regimented, but in a good way. And I... I don't know how or when this came about, but I said, you know, I'm kind of interested in producing. And so she let me like shadow on like a show or two. And she's like, this is what I do. This is how I do it. And I, I also have a background in graphic design and I had started to dabble in doing their marketing, which I do now. Next thing I know, I'm just like one of the producers of Retro Productions. And, you know, I'm like doing casting calls, helping out with casting, um, fundraising, marketing, you name it. It, What's interesting is when I'm doing a show, I'm doing props and producing. It's this polar, this weird polarity where I'm the lowest man and the highest man on the totem pole. No one cares about the prop designer. A lot of people don't even know I'm there. And that's fine. I get it. I'm not supposed to be known. I'm just supposed to make things happen and they magically show up. But at the same time, I know. (laughs) At the same time, I also have a producer hat where... You know, I have to step in and be a person of authority when Heather is being actor person, not producer person. And then I become producer person. And it's sort of like a lot of hat shifting going on. And uh, I definitely found a voice as a producer. I don't know where or how, but I have heard that I can be intimidating for my small stature. And I don't know if it's my competence. I just, I've always been that way. And I don't know why that is. And I've heard that from many different aspects and maybe someone can shed some light on it. It's just like being very detail oriented and organized and just making sure that things go the way they should. And yeah, that also helped me burn out rather quickly. 
Are you OCD in your personal life? Yes. 100%. Um, I spike my furniture so that if it gets moved, I know exactly with spike tape. Yeah, I do that. So I know exactly where it goes in my house. Does your personal spike tape glow in the dark? No. <laughs> well, I know what I'm getting you for next Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I use it to my advantage. But like, you know, as a props person, sometimes that, you know, people say like, that's just crazy. When I ask them, they're like, oh, can you not use that pen that came out of your bag and use the pen that I gave you because it looks the way I want it to look and they don't understand that. But I think that I think that is to borrow an old phrase. I think that's the difference that makes the difference. Mm. There is I think that there is something to be said about requiring specificity in your work. And I think the projects or the the pieces of art in whatever medium, I think, always benefit from that kind of specificity. And this constant strive for perfection is why I am able to do the work that I do, because not everyone would have that level of perfection, you know? The things you notice, the actors don't even notice and what you've given them, like you said. Yeah, like there was a couple tech rehearsals on a show I did where I was just sitting in the corner biting, carving down pencils and biting them because the actor was playing it very nervous and I wanted his pencils in the play to like look like he'd been chewing on them for weeks. That happened. Holy. That was real. Holy. That's amazing. Wow. I know. Okay. And here's the thing. A lot of people have asked, why don't you do Broadway? Because they don't let you do that. Fascinating. That's why I don't do Broadway. Could I, if I had taken the steps to get a show on, you know, in the union on Broadway, I probably could do it. Yeah. But they don't let you bite pencils during tech rehearsals because they don't care. You're not going to see it. That's the thing. Right. In indie theater, the the spaces are so small and intimate that's like, you do notice those details. Yes, in proof, I wrote out all the notebooks with real math equations mm-hmm. because the way they were playing it, he was five feet from the front row. They're going to see it. There's no way in putting gibberish in those notebooks. Right. It took me forever, but it, you know, it was worth it. And that the actor, he kept them. <laughs> he kept them, which was a lot of my props get taken away because they want to keep them. And that's great. One <laughs> of the people who has taken your props <laughs> sitting right here at this table. One of the reasons confirm. we're such kindreds. <laughs> when I was doing this, was I mean, this was pro- I actually probably learned this from you. Mm-hmm. But it was like five years after we started working together, I did a play uh, about John Wilkes Booth called Booth, oh, yes. and we had Booth's journal in it. And the playwright, who's one of my best friends, named Stephen Walters, was like, uh, "So we got to get like writing in this book. Do you want to do it?" And I was like, "Yes, yes, I do." And so I took it, and I went and found a couple of examples of his handwriting, learned how to do his signature perfectly, then went to my copy of all of his writing and wrote every single bit of it in as close to his handwriting as I could do in this book. Hmm. That's and how it, you do it. It's the most Daniel Day-Lewis I've ever been, but yeah. man, it was fun. And it meant right? so much when I would open it up and like exactly. see a page that had come out through my like physical objects for some reason. Really it makes do. a difference. Yeah. Like when we did the Aaron Burr play, Remember, we found a a bunch of his letters online, and then I had taken them, and I actually wrote out the letters that he had written, and those appeared. I don't know if we ever saw them, but they were there, and I felt like that meant something to the production. Oh, The fact that his actual letters that I rewrote on the paper that I made were there. And and Jessica Renee Russell, in particular, who was the 
protagonist of the play mm -hmm. who discovers this like trunk of love letters that he's written to other women. Not only was there no way to predict in which way hundreds of letters would fall out of a trunk, but then you would have no idea like what area of stage she would be on to rip open a letter to yeah. to do a moment. Because it was in a different spot every night. Yeah. Mm. And that and it, it, it gave her the freedom to do such explosive, honest work. Because to actually live the moment, not act the moment. Yeah. Huh. And I feel like that makes a difference in terms of performance. When you don't have to worry about, is this book blank? Oh my God, it's blank. What do I do? But if I'm working on the show, don't worry about the it. The book is never going to be blank. Like I never put blank paper on stage ever. Which is why you're burnt out. <laughs> Which is why you're burnt out. Which is why I'm burnt out. Which is why if you're listening to this podcast and you're hiring Sarah Slagle for your next project, give her money for a team. Mm. Give her money Here's for a thing. team. Uh-oh. If I don't know if I would accept it. Really? Yeah, that's that's the OCD perfectionist part of me where it's it's not so much a control freak thing. It's just like I feel like I would not be able to explain my process to someone else and have it come out the way I want it to come out. Hmm. I'm like a one woman show. Hmm. How do you think I mean knowing that about yourself, knowing that that led you to burnout? Mm-hmm. Do you have any, have you thought about any ways in which you will shift the way that you work if and when you come back to the industry? I haven't thought that far yet. I haven't fished enough yet to know what that answer is. Well, I guess that means we'll need to have Sarah Slagle back for a part two. For part two. Part two. Yeah. After, yeah, after I hit the Beaver Kill River, I'll let you know. There it is. Awesome. Beaver Kill. We're putting it on the calendar. What day is that? April. <laughs> Great. Awesome. We'll see you at the end of April. <laughs> This week on Twitter, Cynthia Silver, who is at Sin, C-Y-N underscore Silver, says, A dose of zen, courtesy of at Rude Grooms and my brilliant friend, brackets, Anya Saffer? She didn't write the brackets. Those are my brackets, because Anya is a brilliant, brilliant dose of zen. Thank you so much, Cynthia. We love you. We got to get you on this show. Yes. Because you are also beyond brilliant. I've um, talked about it before. Cynthia Silver is the reason that I took a third year at Atlantic. Whoa. Yep. Well, I'm going to, I want to learn more about that when yep. Cynthia is sitting right here at this wood no. Yep. So challenge um, is dished to you, my friend. She should also, Cynthia, if you're listening to this, uh, when you come on the episode, bring Sadie. Have you met Cynthia's daughter, Sadie? I haven't met Sadie. They are cool. I've seen many, yeah. many a beautiful photo. Sadie is cooler than all of us. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Daniel, I also, it's been a couple weeks, mm -hmm. but I have been asked multiple times by a friend of ours, Amber Elby, what do you think of George Lucas in Love? I and, loved it. And have you seen Bubba Hotep? I've not seen Bubba Hotep. Amber asked me this question on on uh, on Twitter. I've not seen Bubba Hotep. I thought that George Lucas in Love was great. There was, I think in the initial watching, there was one thing. Yeah, the Yoda impression was a little too ham-handed. That was just a little, I was like, especially because everything else was so subtle. And I, that the Yoda bit was a little forced. And I was like, mm, okay, well, it's it's hard to fit Yoda in there anyway, but sure. If that's what you could do, that's what you could do. I look forward to growing old with you, Daniel Kemper. <laughs> <laughs> also this week, uh, Mandy Kulega, who is at the underscore Mandy, M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, bird on Instagram, uh, posted, okay, good, coffee on the Anya episode, mm -hmm. which basically sums up uh, my experience of listening to that again this morning exactly. for the fourth time because yeah. uh, just is the Yoda in, I need in my life. Just settle into that episode with a good cup of coffee and like be ready to just chill out. I really did love that conversation so much. Oh my much. god. Should we listen so to it again good. right now? 
No, because we have to watch Jojo Rabbit after this. And finally this week, Roger Lipson, who is at Roger underscore Lipson, L-I-P-S-O-N on Instagram, uh, says, the interview was brilliant. Thank you for posting. Well, thank you for listening, Roger, and for sharing those thoughts. Uh, I agree. Anya's brilliant. Yeah, Anya makes us all look good by association. Yeah. Those are facts. Those are absolute facts. Yep. So Rachel Purcell on Instagram at Rachel Percy. She said, oh, thank goodness, because I'm officially out of this wooden episodes to listen to. She binged all of our episodes in a couple of weeks and says, I can't tell you how much I've been enjoying the binge. I'm fairly new to podcasts and only started listening to anything when I started regularly walking a dog. So I'm still kind of finding my podcast groove, but your show is great. She says, in response to the Anya conversation, I really did enjoy it. I love this religiosity idea, parentheses, all too descriptive. And made me think about something Raul Esparza said at a live interview I went to. He was talking about being brought up in a very Cuban Catholic environment and went on to talk about how people go to church for the same reason they go to the theater, to communally experience emotion and connection. Also really made me want to brush up on my checkoff. I feel like I have missed that in not really having formal training. So anyway, I think the action item here is you should probably have Raul Esparza on this wood no. Which I wholeheartedly agree with. And have Anya teach a checkoff class for working professionals. Correct. I think that's a twofold recommendation right yep. there. So we've officially sent out uh, formal invitations to Raul Esparza and LeVar Burton. Hashtag this Burton O. Yep. Hashtag this Burton O. We and have, Ashling B. <clears throat> and Ashling B. Our first invitation. Our first in- invitation was to Ashling B. That is correct. So thank you again to everyone who responded to last week's episode. If you have thoughts on this week's episode, please go ahead and tweet at us, insta at us, or better yet, record some audio and email it to thiswouldknow at rudegrooms.com. Uh, for our Patreon supporters, they've actually already heard our first uh, audio submission emailed to that email address from Amber Elby. Uh, that's in response to what's going to be episode 11 with Deb Radloff. Uh, that episode is already available to watch an archival live stream of on Patreon. And so those who are listening to the most recent recording with Jenny Stewart, the Associate Artistic Director of Shakespeare Dallas, they are able to listen to Amber's recording and see our first response to it. Some recommendations. Got anything, Daniel? I do. This recommendation is coming. It's a a little bit of an older book, but I'm rereading it because I'm getting ready to read the third installment of the series. This week, I am going to recommend John Dies at the End by David Wong. David Wong is the pen name of Jason Pargin, formerly a writer for Cracked.com. He wrote a series of books, the first one being titled John Dies at the End, the second one being titled uh, This Book is Full of Spiders, Seriously Don't Touch It, and the third one, which I'm getting ready to read, uh, entitled "What Did I? What the Hell Did I Just Read?" A novel of cosmic horror. These are really weird, darkly comedic sci-fi novels about alien invasions and parasitic life form that takes on the form of soy sauce that gives you hyperintelligence along with uh, a whole lot of other darker implications. And the first installment is hilarious i'm like skimming through the first two books to sort of catch myself up on what's been happening in the series before i crack open the third one for the first time so if you want to read along with me john dies at the end this book is full of spiders and what the hell did i just read by david wong cool 
Uh, this week, uh, I'm going to recommend another Apple TV Plus show in case you got Apple TV Plus to watch Dickinson. If you haven't, you must. It's so good. And I'm going to recommend a show that when I first saw it, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to recommend because I was on the fence about it. Uh, the Morning Show. Over the course of its 10 episodes, it becomes some of the most daring, bold, wrenching, painful, complicated human and entertaining television that I've ever seen. Gugu and Bathu Ra. But I don't want to spoil too much about the show, uh, but gives a performance that I think might be the most heart-wrenching thing I've ever seen on a television performance. I'm a huge, huge fan of her work uh, ever since I first saw her in a, a play called Nell Gwynn at the Globe back in 2015, which is also like maybe my favorite thing I've ever seen on stage. She's a powerhouse and her her work in this show is incredible, but so is everyone. It, I know that it's kind of a controversial pick, but I, by the time the first season reached its end, I have been fully won over and it's still leaving me thinking and leaving me really inspired by the performances. If you want to find uh, more and stay up to date with everything that Sarah is doing in the world, you can find her on the internet machine on Instagram at A2Z, spelled phonetically, so that is E-H-T-O-O Z-E-E. Sarah, what does that come from? I have a tattoo that says A to Z. What does it mean? Um, it, it goes back to like my typographical nerd roots. And uh, it's just basically like from one extreme to the other. Oh, I love And everything in between. That's yeah. so fitting. Yeah. How long have you had that tattoo? Oof, I got this when I first moved to New York. So like 13, 14 years. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I know. And once you f- know the story and you're like, that's so fitting for you. Yeah. it is. No. Yeah. Well, there I you have it. I hardly agree. Follower, get the tattoo. Yeah. Get the tattoo. Start a cult. We'll beat a tattoo at 22. And good night. That's two glasses of wine in and I still hit all them teas. I'm just saying. I am Monty. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Montgomery Sutto. On Instagram, I am at Montgomery Sutton. Uh, I'm Daniel Kemper. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Daniel Kemper. And if you enjoyed what you listened to, please subscribe, rate, etc., etc. Uh, and we look forward to being with you again next Monday. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Bottomzilla. Oh wait, but that's not actually the end anymore because we're gonna do it. Great. Well, we'll just cut after what you said. Yeah, so what yeah. I said is fine. Yeah. Bottoms up anyway. Well, I'm not going to bottoms up. That's too much wine. That is way too much wine. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at rudegrooms and at this wooden o.